In Acts chapter 19, we will be looking at at verses 1 through 20 this morning. I want to begin at the end and show you where we get to in this particular chapter. In chapter 19, in verse 20, you come to a place of having watched a lot of different things happen in the first 20 verses of this chapter. A lot that's taking place within this particular church. And And it comes to a place in verse 20 where it says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What an incredible place that it leaves us there in verse 20. It's what every church ought to want to see take place. Regardless of of the numbers of people within a church, or regardless of the number of programs that are taking place, or regardless of any of those kinds of things, what, what you want is to hear that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There was something taking place within that church, and it was awesome. Because what was occurring is God's word was going forward. It was going forward in such a way that it's, we're told that it grew mightily and prevailed. The church of, of Ephesus is in this particular region where they're in what's now that area of Turkey. Um, it, it was an, an area of, of um, prosperity, materialism, ambition. The, 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 there was a, a, a temple site there, Temple of Artemis, where it's known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 marble pillars that went 60 feet high. Incredible, incredible, majestic structure that was there. There was incredible ceiling there and, and the gold and rare gems that were inlaid within that temple. But a place of gross sin as well. A place where there's just incredible wickedness taking place. A a place of of witchcraft and sorcery and all kinds of just perverse things that were occurring within that particular city. But God saved people there in that city. God built a church in Ephesus. We learn about what that church is like. We see it, it as being Largely a hub in which the word of God would go forward in all different kinds of directions, whether it be a letter written to the church of Ephesus or whether it be Paul being there and serving there for several years or Timothy being there and serving there as he's receiving letters from Paul or John coming back and being there as he writes his letters and as he's writing portions of scripture from Ephesus. There's all kinds of things taking place from that area in which the word of God is going forward. We find that, that these people, like us here, were those that were far from believing, and yet God came and saved them. In Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 13, he's talking about when they first believed. and He says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so you you were saved. You were sealed. 
and now I'm praying for you. And he just goes through and he, 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 he tells them, like, this is what I'm praying for you. He tells them, I, I'm gonna, I, I don't stop giving thanks for you. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of, of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is what I'm praying for. I'm praying that, that this church would just know him, that you would be enlightened in that, that you would know the hope of his calling, you would have hope in the gospel. I want you to be in, in a place where you, you understand the, the riches of the glory of, of, of his inheritance in the saints. And I, I want you just to understand the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. I want you to understand his power. I want you to understand who he is. I want you to understand your hope in the gospel. These are the things that I, I pray for. I, I, I pray that, that Christ would have preeminence. He says, he says that, that the fullness of him who fills all in all, that there would just be preeminence of Christ here within the church. And so Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus in these areas. He tells them in Ephesians 2 that, that it was God that made you alive. You, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. Think of our congregation here. Same for us. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive. You were once walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You, you once conducted yourselves in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You were by nature children of wrath just as the others. This is who you were. But God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is the church that he's talking to. You, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were walking according to the course of this world. But God, God did something radical in you all. He saved you. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He'll keep you to the very end. May he have preeminence within the church. And so he's so clear with the church of Ephesus as far as this is who you are, this is who you were, this is who you are, and this is what you're going to be. And so we find in this particular chapter that God was doing something awesome. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and it was prevailing. Prevailing. In verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he says to them, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him and, and who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here Paul comes to this area, and, and they don't even understand the Holy Spirit. They're saying, we don't understand. And, and he said, well, then who were you baptized under? He said, John the Baptist. 
They were still in a place of, these were ones that had been following John the Baptist. And, and, and here Paul comes in like, no, John the Baptist was pointing towards someone else. Pointing towards Christ. You remember with, with John the Baptist where he's there at the River Jordan and, and, uh, and he's baptizing these people and they're confessing their sins. And he says, there comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These people are still in a place of identifying themselves with John the Baptist. Paul's saying, no. John, he's the one that says, there's one coming mightier than I, and his sandal strap I'm not worthy to even stoop down and loose. He's the one that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had no ability to forgive sins or give eternal life through the work of the cross, but Christ did. And so... They heard this, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 6, it says, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There was a work that was taking place there. Praise for them. Lays hands on them, prays for them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and immediately comes upon them and empowers them, giving them the heart and the words to give all the glory to God and to be a witness for Christ works in their hearts this particular time with signs and, and, and wonders ministering to each one of these people. You think of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where Jesus had promised the church, but, when, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And these people also were receiving power as the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Verse 7 tells us that the men were about 12 in all. 12 men that were there. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now remember at the end, what's taking place? The word of the Lord is growing mightily and prevailing. God's doing a work. But part of that work is taking place is you see someone like the Apostle Paul going and speaking boldly. Speaking boldly in the synagogue. For three months, reasoning, persuading concerning the things of God, enabling them to see like this is what Scripture says. This is the prophecies that were given. This is where it pointed towards Christ. This is where it said what he was going to do. This is what the gospel message is. This is how you can be saved. And he's just raising with them and persuading them. And here you have these 12 guys that were following John the Baptist. They're now saved. God's working in their lives powerfully. Paul's there preaching and God is doing a work. And he's there for three months speaking in the synagogue. Verse 9, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he, he leaves now after three months the sanctuary, or the, 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 the synagogue, and he goes from there after there was some hardness of heart within the people. Now, I think it's noteworthy that he says, when some, but when some were hardened and did not believe, what does that tell you? It tells you that there were many that 
were not hearted and that did believe. There, there was a work taking place. But Paul now goes and he goes and, and rents out this particular school of, of Tyrannus and, and, and goes to that particular place and says, like, this is where I'm going to teach. And so he does. There's other documentation within the Western text that tells us that, that Paul took the quarters there of Tyrannus from the fifth hour to the tenth. That's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. He had this particular area in the school to teach. 11 to 4. Five hours. Just want you to be thankful when we go a little long today. <laughs> Five hours. Five hours there teaching. And yet what's occurring is, as he's there daily doing this, God's word's prevailing. In verse 10 it says, This continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Two years of teaching. 11 to 4. Two years of teaching and ministering to these people. And it tells us that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Jews and Greeks. It was taking place. God was working in incredible ways. In, in chapter 20, verse 31, it tells us that, that this, for, for this I know that after my departure, salvage wolves will, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. But then it says in verse 31, therefore watch and remember for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Acts 20 tells us that that he ends up being in this particular area and points that for three years, I, I didn't stop warning you. Teaching, exhorting, encouraging, but warning them for three, a three-year period of time. And, it, and it's, it's not just, okay, we're going to turn now to this particular place and let's get really smart. It's Paul saying every, every day. Um, I, I didn't stop for three years, night and day. With tears. Just wanted you to be in a place where you understood these things and were warned of these things and understood that we're fighting against principalities and powers and being in a place of understanding the gospel and being able to understand who our God is and the one that we serve and how we depend upon him and how he's saved us and how he preserves us and how it is that we are to live for him. And and I didn't stop for three years with tears doing that night and day, 11 to four, and then whatever took place at night. During the morning, what's he doing? He's making tents so he doesn't have to ask for money from them. Serving them for three years like that. Because it's serious as far as what's taking place, and Paul understands that. Paul understands the calling in which he has to make disciples, to preach the word. He understands how important it is that a congregation like this doesn't just hear the word and have it come in, and we're like, okay, that was fun. Or I learned a lot. But that it, it comes within us and causes us to understand the greatness of our God, the greatness of our Savior, to be able to understand the 
the preciousness of, of Christ's blood that was shed for us and, and what it is that he has done to save us so that we would be in love with our God, in love with our Savior, that we would be in such a place that there would be such clarity of the gospel that we'd have boldness to go forward and preach the gospel, that, that the, the gospel and God's word and our knowledge of God and our knowledge of our failures and, and our, our frailty would be such that we would depend upon him that it would affect us, not just as far as getting smart or enjoying listening from 11 to 4, but being in a place where it affects marriages, husbands, the way they love their wives, wives, the way they love their husbands. It affects the way children are towards their parents. It affects the ways that we are at work, the way that we submit to our rulers, the way that we submit to those that are in authority over us, the way that we would use the funds that God's entrusted to us, the way that we would talk to people, the way that we would witness to people, the way that it affects everything in our lives. He wanted them to get it. He wanted people to run from sin, run from it, hate sin, want nothing to do with sin, and run to Christ. Not with a big view of themselves, but a gigantic view of God and dependent upon Him and walking with Him step by step every part of the way so that He would be glorified in it all. And He just taught them and ministered to them with tears because he saw the effects of sin. He saw the effects of false teaching. He saw the effects of people that, that had come to a, a, a place of, of not knowing what they ought to know at that particular time. And he wanted to see a change within them. And may the same thing be for us here at Reverence Bible Church. It's not about numbers and it's not about being entertained. It's about being Christians that when God has you resuscitated, when most people don't resuscitate, you find great joy in Him and you live for His glory. When you find out you have cancer and you know more about cancer than anybody else in this room, because you're a doctor, except for his wife. Dr. Jim will admit that she got better marks than he did. But when you know that much about cancer and you're about ready to face it, um, you need to have a gigantic view of God to go through that. To still have joy, to minister to others, and to trust Him through it. When life brings hard things your way, we need to be able to continue to run the race that's been set before us. And we need to stir up the gifts that God's given us for his glory, for his exaltation. But that comes with the seriousness about who God is and who we are and what the salvation is and what lies ahead for us. There's a seriousness that's there. And so, he's reasoning with them, ministering to them with tears. We come to verse 11 where it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. It's interesting when you see a, a text like that. This is not something that obviously we find to be a normal part of, of the Christian church today as much as People would like to sell you handkerchiefs on TBN. 
not a normal part of what's taking place, but God's working. Remember the end, the word of the, of, of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. But God was using the Apostle Paul to bring healing to that particular area in ways in which it was, it was totally out of the ordinary and, and, and making it so that even his handkerchiefs or his apron, people would, would, would touch it and, and be healed. And it's interesting that the Lord picked those things because it's not something incredible or beautiful that they're going to make into an idol, but something in which it's just like, this is what he washed his hands with, dried them off with, a handkerchief, an apron. He's a tent maker. But you notice that the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written in such a way that it tells us, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. It was God working those miracles through him. It was God doing something miraculous through him. It wasn't Paul that was the one that was miraculous. It was God that was doing the work through him. And so people are getting healed, and evil spirits are going out from them. Then some, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The Jewish exorcists are saying, let's try this. We're not believers, but let's, let's try to cast out demons. And we'll say, through Jesus and through Paul. Well, there's these seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, um, who did so. So there's these, these, these seven sons of a Jewish high priest who say, let's, let's do this. Let's go cast out demons ourselves in this pagan, witchcraft-filled area of Ephesus. And so they do. They go out to do this. And the evil spirit answers them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Here these guys are trying to do something and mimic something that only God could do. We know Jesus, I know Paul too, but who are you? And the, it tells us, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It didn't go well, did it? <laughs> Here's these, these guys, these seven guys in whom they're trying to do this, and yet they get beaten. The words that are used there... The, the, are, are, are done in such a way that it means that, that they were hurt badly. They, they were hurt in such a way that it did not heal quickly. They were hurt by these demons or by this particular demon and run out of the house beaten and wounded, naked. Well, this became known, verse 17, to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. God even used these seven guys and them trying to mimic what God only could do 
He uses them being beaten and running out naked because people were able to see that the name of Jesus was more precious than that. It wasn't just a recipe. It was the God of the universe. Fear came on all people. They saw what took place. They heard what took place. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. God used that to magnify himself. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is what was taking place. The church is believing. It's growing. They're confessing and telling the stuff that they've done. Those that were practicing this magic, this witchcraft, said, let's bring our books. Let's bring our scrolls. Let's bring these things together. Let's get rid of all of this stuff. And so they bring it all together and they get rid of it. They burn it. It wasn't something that was of little value. 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what it was worth. Can you picture it taking place? The Lord's name is being magnified. The word is growing mightily and it is prevailing and the people are being affected. And they say, let's take the sinful stuff in our lives and let's bring it out here and let's burn it. We don't care what it's worth. Let's burn it. Let's get rid of this stuff. So they did. It wasn't just hearing the words. It wasn't about, show us another miracle. It was God working in their hearts and causing himself to be seen as worth more than anything else that this world could ever offer. What do you think would be the stuff that we would take out today? What would be the stuff that we would come to burn? That particular church saw the worth of Christ and they looked and said, like, let's get rid of these things. These are things that are just hindrances to us. These aren't good things in our lives. Let's get rid of these things. There's certain things in your lives where you probably need to take it and say, hey, get rid of this stuff. This stuff's a hindrance to me. This stuff's bad for me. I serve Christ now. My affections go towards him now. He's worth everything to me now. Therefore, there's certain things in my life that are just of this world that are sinful things that I don't want anything to do with. I want to be single-minded. I want to be fixed upon Christ. There's things that just absorb my time, my affections, my heart, all these things that just are rubbish in comparison to the excellencies of Christ. You need to get rid of these things. There may be certain things that just need to go. Um, And some of those things are hard to get rid of. We're not going to call for a book burning thing. We're not going to go start a big fire in the parking lot or anything like that. I can think of like times that you had like cassette tapes or records and some of those where it's just like, gosh, I probably should get rid of this. But this was like nine bucks, you know? It's hard to get rid of. You know how much I spend on all this, you know, heavy metal stuff? Like, yeah, not me, just so you know. Like, I grew up on Keith Green, and every once in a while, like, 
got real secular and listened to the Beach Boys or something like that. <laughs> Kenny Rogers. Um, we just, our parents were incredibly legalistic. There was zero music in our household. Um, I thank God for that. It's music that comes up and I've like never heard of it. Tasha grew up in a pagan home. And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is your mom here? <laughs> Listen to almost anything. No, but she knows I, I don't, so much that I just didn't know about. Thank God. But I'm sure there's way more serious stuff, though, as well. The little stuff as well as the far more serious stuff in your life where you would look and say, like, hey, that stuff I ought to for sure come and just say, I want to get rid of all this stuff. These things that have taken over my life, I need to get rid of these things. And just watch the word of God grow mightily and prevail. Um, Turn with me as we close to the book of Revelation. You, you find in chapter 2, right there at the beginning, Jesus' description of the church of Ephesus, and sometimes past after our text here. But you hear what God says about the church. And I'll close with this because I, I think it's important to be able to look at not just what we're looking at in our text and seeing all that God is doing. Not just looking at the book of Ephesians and see where they came from and what God did for them. But where they came to just some years later. In the, still during the lifetime of, of John. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. These things say... He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Those are all good things, right? Sounds like a solid church. Sounds like a church in which I hope that would be us, right? They, he sees their work. He sees what they're doing. He sees their labor. He sees their patience. He knows that they can't bear those that are doing evil. They want to stay away from that. They've tested those things. Those people who say they're apostles and they say, no, like, you're not an apostle. That's not biblical. That's not right. We know what scripture says. That's wrong. He found them to be liars. And they've persevered and they've had patience and they've labored for Christ's namesake. And they didn't become tired doing it. They just keep going. But nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. We look at a church in which the word of the Lord 
is growing mightily and prevailing. God is doing incredible works there within the church. He's healing people. He's saving people. He's causing all kinds of things to take place. They are working hard. They are serving in all kinds of ways. They're doing these things, but they have left their first love. They don't love him like they did. Um, If that's us, if that's you, God says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. On this Sunday morning, there may be a need for repentance to take place. You're working. You're doing things. You're patient. Your doctrine's good. You're here because you love to study the Bible. You're serving in all kinds of ways. But God might look upon you and say, but you've left your first love. Remember where you fell from. Repent. And do the first works. Go back to a place of, you're not just doing stuff, but you are in love with your Savior, serving Him. May we not be about, let's go do it, without a heart that is just affectionate to the one who is our King of kings and our Lord of lords, our Savior, the one whom has redeemed us by His precious blood and has sealed us with His Holy Spirit and has made a place in which we could go to dwell with him for all eternity. May every part of our lives be not only biblical, passionate, and working, but in love with the one in whom we serve. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the text before us. Make changes, Lord, in Reverence Bible Church where those changes need to take place. Make changes in each individual, myself included. May we wholeheartedly repent. Do the first works again as we've remembered from where we've fallen. We see a God who you can use all things for your glory and you can work mightily within the church. You can gift people in ways in which you are glorified. But I pray that in it all, that we would keep you as supreme and in the forefront of our minds, that our hearts would be passionately, passionately in love with you. And may that be reflected as we partake in communion now and worship you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.